Hello, today at Real Clear Defense, we are joined by Washington Post reporter Josh Rogan to talk about Josh's new book called Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, Xi, and the Battle for the 21st Century. It's a fantastic book, fresh reporting, great insights. Josh, thanks for joining us. Great to be on with you. So I want to start with a question at the core of the book, which is current dealing with China. It seems to me there's a bicameral mind in America about dealing with China, and it was represented in Trump's administration. On the one side, you had industry, business people who saw Chinese wealth and investment as a propellant for growth. I'm thinking of people like Jared Kushner and Gary Cohn, Steve Mnuchin, and others. On the other side, skeptics, military and economic security people who saw theft, influence, excessive competent competition and competitive ambition. These were people like Peter Navarro, Robert Lighthizer, Stephen Miller, and maybe in a different way, Matt Pottinger. So my first question is, on January 20th, 2021, which viewpoint held uh, the ascendant position in American policy on China? Right. Thanks, John. Well, you know, a lot to unpack there in your uh, excellent setup. You know, in my book, Chaos Under Heaven, uh, I identify actually five or six different factions inside the Trump administration and the U.S. government uh, on China when President Trump came into office quite unexpectedly uh, in uh, 2017. And yeah, you mentioned some of them, but let me just lay them out really quickly for you because I think it's really important, right? You had, you know, a president who campaigned as a super hawk who gave rallies promising to correct 40 years of what he saw of what he saw as China taking advantage of the United States on trade. And that was part of the reason he got elected. And it's part of what President Trump, Donald Trump, has believed and written about for over 30 years. I read every book he claims to have written or co-authored. And uh, the messages on that is amazingly consistent. And that is a reflection of the people who were on the Trump campaign at the time. And you named a couple of them, Peter Navarro, Steve Bannon, and Stephen Miller. Now, they, when they got into the administration, formed a group, what, what I call the Superhawks, right? These are people who believed that, you know, we have to take down the CCP because they represent an existential threat to our security and our way of life. And, uh, you know, that was... Uh, Expected. That's what the Chinese feared. But that was maybe you if you had watched the campaign, you would have thought that would have been the policy. But what happened was they were quickly sidelined. OK, and the the, the policy was handed off to the another group that you mentioned, which was the, the Wall Street clique, the Jared Kushner, Steve Mnuchin, at that time, Gary Cohn's of the world, including Wilbur Ross, although Ross is a complicated figure in the story. Um but that was not the they were not the only players in town. They were given the ball. But then you had another group that I called the hardliners. Now, these were national security and intelligence officials like Matt Pottinger, who you mentioned, uh, who at the time was uh, working for Mike Flynn. Uh, I put Pence, Vice President Pence in this category. Later, Mike Pompeo and John Bolton and then later Robert O'Brien. And these were people who didn't want to blow up their relationship like Steve Bannon, but they wanted to reset it on new terms, correct what they saw as a, a status quo that had been badly disrupted by American negligence to the rising threat coming from the CCP's actions and behavior. Then you had the axis of adults. Now, these were the military guys like Jim Mattis and John Kelly and uh, – you know, in a sense, Rex Tillerson, who thought that their job was to keep the crazy president from driving the car off the road, right? And they were uh, uh, hawkish on national security stuff, but they didn't agree with the super hawks economic policy. They were basically free traders. These are creatures of Washington, right? The, the, the old sacred cows of DC that all of us journalists have known for all these times. They eventually all cycled out because they 
pissed off President Trump or whatever, right? And then you have the bureaucrats, and this is really important too, because the bureaucrats didn't like the Trump people and they're resisting a, a tougher China policy because it's what they've known for these last 40 years. It's what they've been working on. They formed assorted alliances that changed over times based on overlapping interests. And that kind of complexity is what was really lost during the reporting at the time because of the fog of war and the Twitter feeds and the propaganda and all of that stuff. And that's what the book aims to do. It aims to go back and tell the, the nuanced, complicated, multi-leveled uh, uh, true story of how the United States changed its foreign policy towards a more competitive and confrontational position towards China. And to get to your question, finally, the answer is that that change has been preserved to, the, to a large degree by the Biden administration for a number of really important reasons. One is because, it, what you said, there's bipartisan consensus on, in Congress that we need a tougher approach, a more uh, focused on confronting the Chinese Communist Party and its malevolent behavior and less focused on engagement. And then you had the Biden administration's top Asian official, Kirk Campbell, say as much. He said the era of engagement is over. That 40-year experiment of just, you know, wishing the Chinese government and the Chinese uh, Communist Party would liberalize economically and politically, uh, that, that, that has been lost. And we just need to be clear-eyed about that and take a different strategic approach. But the devil is in the details, and the fights inside the Biden administration have yet to really play out. But they will. Eventually, you're going to see tensions similar to those that you saw in 2017, where you have economic interests, business interests, you know, bureaucratic interests, political interests, and national security interests all clashing with each other in one form or another. Uh, we're starting to see the beginnings of that right now. And so you talked about the CCP posing, in your words, an existential threat. And in the book, you write that virtually everyone you know has, at some point, an awakening moment on the China threat. You also note that the Obama administration sought primarily to collaborate with China, betting it would reform politically and economically. So my second question, did President Obama or Obama officials that you have spoken with have an awakening moment too? Right, right. And you know, this awakening idea didn't come from me. This is as I'm talking to people for the book and primarily not the China hands, right? If you talk to the the China experts at think tanks around DC, they'll always say the same thing. Of course we knew that this was a a, a risky endeavor, you know, engaging the CCP in the hopes that they would liberalize. And yes, we understood that that was, you know, maybe wouldn't work out. And we then and they could paint you a story about how it wasn't a failed policy. But, you know, that's different from the rest of the world. And, you know, around Washington first, you know, starting in the national security community, the intelligence communities, but then expanding to other areas of American society, what I witnessed in my reporting was that these discussions, this kind of this discussion we're having right now, you and me, John, about how to deal with a China and a Chinese Communist Party that's increasingly powerful and and increasingly using that power in ways that are problematic to our lives. Uh, that's how do we deal with that? And how do we talk about that openly and honestly? And then how do we try to first convince the Chinese Communist Party to change its behavior if that's possible? And then second, if we can't convince them, then to protect ourselves. And, you know, that term existential threat, that's not my term. I'm, I was using that to describe the Superhawks, to be perfectly clear. That's not my view. My view is that we need to find a new balance of power with China such that we can both live together, you know, such that we both avoid the conflict that neither side is actually seeking. But what I add to that and what I argue in the book essentially is that the way to make the situation is more dangerous is by ignoring the problem and that 
as the Chinese Communist Party gets more powerful and it's actually getting worse. Its behavior and actions are getting much, much worse. And and the the story of the pandemic is illustrative here. But bottom line is that their appetite grows with the eating. So we have to deal with it now that the longer we wait and the longer we dither, the worse it's going to get. And no, the uh, the idea should be to use a combination of sticks and carrots and pressures and strategies and alliances and all that stuff that all of our tools of um, of national power, uh, you know, to say, no, you, we, we can't live in a world where the Chinese Communist Party is committing genocide. But that doesn't mean we're trying to take down the Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, that's my my basic argument, although, you know, it doesn't seem to be winning the day, to be honest with you. <laughs> Fair. And you mentioned um, genocide and it, you certainly explore it. In the book, uh, for listeners out there, is the Chinese Communist Party committing genocide right now? Yes, mm-hmm. yes, and you know, and I mean, listen, you know, uh, yes, uh, one of the main things that the Chinese Communist Party is doing right now is promoting a, a particularly pernicious uh, version of genocide denial, right? And you know, if you want to talk about the legal definition of genocide, I'm happy to do that. Basically, it says that according to the conventions that you know China is supposedly bound to. It says that you have to have two things. You have to have actions that uh, are intended to reduce a group, the size of a group, uh, in whole or in part. In other words, you don't have to wipe them all out, but you have to be uh, intending to make a group smaller through a various actions. Now, there's two things in there. There's the actions and there's the intent, right? So what some people will argue is like, well, we don't know their intent. Maybe they're just you know, persecuting Muslims all over China and Uyghurs, you know, but not to destroy them just to, you know, for some other nefarious purpose. And that's horrible, but that's not genocide. But what I say is that, you know, uh, when when you implement um, additional uh, additive uh, measures to control the population beyond what you're doing for the other populations, everyone has a population policy, but talking about forced sterilization, forced abortion, and, uh, other measures, forced uh, IUD implementation, I mean, some really sick stuff, okay? That's where the intent, that's why, where I get the intent. And I'm not basing that on data or or th- that's in contention. I'm basing that on interviews that I did with several survivors and but from the testimony of hundreds of survivors. And guess what? There's going to be more survivors and the intent will become more clear. Now, that doesn't get you to what do you do about it? What could we do about a, uh, 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 the most powerful organization in the world, the Chinese Communist Party, devoting its amazing resources and technologies, much of which we funded and helped them develop, uh, towards a genocide? That's a very difficult question, but I don't think there's a, a, a good faith argument that it's not genocide. I just think that there's a, a good faith argument about what to do about it. And I have my own views on that. And basically my view is that we need to do more because the genocide is getting worse and the camps are expanding. And now you're seeing the, the tactics uh, uh, exported to other parts of China or in some places re-imported because they started in Tibet and now they're coming back to Tibet in force and Inner Mongolia and, you know, at what point are we going to stand up and say, okay, wait a minute, you know, uh, concentration camp, a system of concentration camps in 2021 is 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 no, no bueno. Like, we can't have it. We have to do something about it. That's my view. And perhaps it's it's glossed over here in the States, the degree of preference for Han Chinese as an official policy of the CCP. Can you describe a little bit of these camps you mentioned and provide some, maybe a clearer picture for listeners? Yeah. I mean, it's a complicated story because uh, 
there 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 are a a a rich tapestry of different ethnic groups that uh live have lived in what's now defined as modern china for hundreds of years with varying levels of persecution and or assimilation and or you know uh uh faustian bargains with the chinese communist party whoever was ruling china at that time so we don't have time to go on into that all right now but suffice to say that the trend since xi jinping has it has come to power is to sinicize all of those minorities and all of those religions. And, you know, you only have to read what he said. And if you don't read Chinese, then you should read my book, Chaos Under Heaven, because I dug up all those, doc- my researchers dug up all those documents. And it's, it, what he says very clearly is that, you know, no, these, you know, there's one way it's the, Ch- the Chinese Communist Party's way and everyone has to get on, get on board with that. And guess what happened immediately after he made those speeches? They built a network of prisons uh, where horrendous atrocities are occurring right now. So what I did was I interviewed a bunch of the survivors. Their stories are all different, you know. I interviewed one woman who was forcibly uh, sterilized as a condition of getting out of the camp, although she had never committed any crime or uh, had any legal or any due process whatsoever. She still, you know, lost her family and her freedom and her dignity and, you know, her hair, and no one's ever, you know, compensated her. I, I I interviewed another woman, a uh, young woman named Vera Zhang, who Vera Zhao rather, excuse me, uh, who was a student in America. She was a permanent resident and she went home to visit her father in Xinjiang and logged on to her school's VPN to file her homework and uh for that single crime, uh spent five months in a in a prison and then 18 months with an exit visa and lost three years of her life. Her whole college career was destroyed. She didn't, her credit was destroyed. She lost her apartment. You know, the, she was, she suffered horrible medical, uh, um, uh, consequences and it just goes on and on and on. And, you know, the, the camps get a lot of attention. What doesn't get a lot of attention is what happens to the Uyghurs before they get to the camps because they're living in an open prison, uh, already. And, and you know, they could be, uh, persecuted for doing anything, eating pork, going to the mosque, you know, looking at the guards cross-eyed. Uh, and then what happens when you get out of the camp? Because then you're, the fun is just beginning because then there's a series of, a growing series of forced labor camp, factories, cotton fields, all of this stuff, you know? And so a lot of Americans don't realize that, you know, the shirt on their back or the, the hair that they buy at the hair salon uh was uh you know the product of a uh, sl- forced slave labor or you know worse and uh you know I think just the education of that has put a lot of a lot of policymakers to a conundrum which is okay well you know now that we we can stop debating over whether or not the mass atrocities are happening we can start debating about what to do about it and all the choices are difficult all of them involve costs and trade offs and you know corporate interests come into play and the Chinese Communist Party is a multi-billion dollar campaign to punish any company that dares ask questions about where they're getting their hair or their cotton or anything else. And, you know, it's, this is the, this is the nature of the U S China relationship right now. This is the tone of it. It's, is that we're asking them politely not to commit mass atrocities and then force us to take the, you know, hair that they shaved off the Uyghurs women's heads or, or suffer economic coercion, which is what they're doing. And they're saying, no, screw you. You must take the hair that we shaved off the Uyghur women's heads, and if you don't, we'll punish your company and your economy, and uh, expanding the camps all the t- all the time. It's a it's a horrible, horrible, gigantic problem that's getting worse by the day. 
And so you talk about the CCP's campaign to punish corporate parties who act in ways that are against their interests. Is this a part of what you describe in the book as the united front? I think you call it a magic weapon for strengthening the Chinese nation by mobilizing friends to strike enemies. It's a network of people and universities and businesses and governments who are paid for, controlled, or influenced by the CCP. Um, right. Is this business, is this anti-business, sometimes anti-business campaign or business bullying campaign a part of the United Front? It's linked to the United Front. So, I mean, the term United Front can be used in a couple of ways. In other words, you know, in, in Maoist times, he described the United Front as, uh, you know, one of the magic weapons of the party and fighting their enemies. And that was because it was sort of, set up as the way that the party interacted with anyone who wasn't in the party. Now, skip ahead to 2021, that could mean anyone. It could mean, you know, Chinese Han Chinese people who were not in the party. It could mean the Uyghurs. It could mean overseas Chinese in Los Angeles or New York, or it could mean uh, foreigners like you and me. And so that's a broad term. Now, inside of that, you have a bureaucracy, a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar machine called the United Front Work Department. And what they do is they lord over a system that uh, includes thousands of uh, organizations and entities and human beings who do United Front work. In other words, they push party influence all over the world in ways that are uh, not transparent. In other words, they're overt in a sense that you can see them, but they're covert in a sense in that they conceal a malign purpose. And that's where you get into Chinese Communist Party influence on our campuses and in Hollywood and Yes, in sports and in our corporations and in our politics and in every aspect of our society and our in our grade schools, actually, you know, to be honest. So that's a big thing to think about. Now, when the corporations go into China to to partake uh, uh, in the Chinese market, which is a huge economic lure, as it well should be, uh, they run up to various parts of the Chinese Communist Party system that all has them. One is the United Front. Another one is just you know, the regular party extortion where they steal your technology and force you into a joint venture where they're going to just like, you know, rob you blind sooner or later, but allow you to make enough money in the process that uh, that you don't care or that you look the other way. And uh, that's that's sort of what happened to the NBA is they became a corporate hostage because they didn't realize that you know, the same thing that, you know, the American scientists in Wuhan didn't realize, the same thing that the 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 the, the engagement-focused people in the previous administration didn't realize is that it's all the party controls at all. And the party is now increasing its control over various aspects of uh, Chinese interactions with the West or with the rest of the world, I should say. And so the NBA didn't understand that one tweet could cost them $400 million in Chinese Communist Party punishment right which is not really about basketball it's not about you know economics it's not about what's good for china even it's just the party you know being its bullying mafioso like self and so that's the you know the the takeaway i think from the nba incident from other corporate incidents is that if you're doing business in china you have to factor in the risk that the party is now becoming more and more aggressive and exerting a level of 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 power and, and malign influence and control and and coercion and punishment unforeseen. It's it's worse. It's getting all worse. And I think e each of these companies is dealing with it in a different way, depending on their various levels of exposure and how much money they think they could make 
before the curtain comes down and whether or not that particular CEO is going to be there for a year or five years. But, you know, that doesn't that's separate and apart from the national security implications of a lot of these things, because a lot of these companies are handing over technology, handing over science uh, to that the party will use for sure, uh, not only to build concentration camps and to build the cameras that sit atop the concentration camp walls, but also to build the economic aggression machine that's pointed at us. That's meant to not to take over the world per se, but to make sure that uh, the the global world order of the 21st century is one that's safe for autocracy and repression and one that the Chinese Communist Party can ensure never threatens its own survival, much less its interests. And uh, that's the that's the that's the competition we're in. It's a it's a systems competition. And, you know, um, I, th I think, again, we're sort of just coming around to that fact now a little bit too late, if you ask me. Let me challenge you a little bit and you raise the example of uh, Matthew Pottinger in the book to do so. He comes in for a lot of credit in Chaos Under Heaven, and it appears well-deserved. Uh, he says you write that China's goal is to, quote, co-opt or bully people and even nations into a particular frame of mind that's conducive to Beijing's grand ambitions. I read that and I thought, well, sure, uh, I would say the same about Russia, the same about what the United States is looking to accomplish, the same about many other countries to try to uh, gain a favorable perception among uh, nations, among people across the world. So tell me this, what is Beijing's grand ambition? Right. So, you know, you could say that all countries promote their own power and influence, right? That's a, a fairly, you know, uh, uh, obvious thing to say. So it's 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 a it's a fair question to say. Okay, well, what makes this challenge different? And it's easy to say that that's because of the character of the Chinese Communist Party, but it's actually a, a, a number of things. Uh, and um, you know, the the part of it is the fact that the Chinese Communist Party has um, intentionally and quite uh, skillfully uh, sought to uh, shape a world order that is. Uh, uh, actually a direct threat to our interests and our values in the sense that it's a world order where genocides can take place, where economic rules of the road uh, disappear, where, you know, oversight and transparency of things like, you know, labs that work on dangerous viruses are totally uh, impossible. And, uh, you know, yeah, it, you, if you want to tell me, okay, well, none of that matters to me. In other words, I'm okay with a, a global world order where, you know, basic, uh, interests and values in the United States are subjugated to the, the, the greater power of a, of a country that simply doesn't care about any of those things. And we, you know, and then, okay, but I'm not okay with it. I'm, I'm taking a, 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 I'm making the argument in this book that actually we have to protect our security and our prosperity and our, uh, uh, our, the integrity of our society and the integrity of our institutions. And that we have to understand that those things that in other words, that the party wishes us harm. It's not just, and if we can get back to a, a a fair competition, I think that's exactly what Pottinger would say, is that again, it's not about bringing down China, it's not about a cold war, it's not about a hot war, uh, it's not about a decoupling. It's about, you know, if if we care about this system that we've built in, built up over the last eighty years with our partners and allies, imperfect as it is, flawed as it is, mistakes have been made. There's no doubt about it. I'm not defending every aspect of the. It, uh, the liberal international world orders or whatever you want to call it, but that there is something worse that China has planned for our international world order. And that that's 
it's going to suck if that wins because our lives will be affected. In other words, it's not just about who gets the African soccer stadium contract. We'll, we'll be living in a world where in our country, uh, we no longer enjoy the security, prosperity, and freedoms that we like. And I like our country and I like our way of life. So I think that's worth defending. And if you disagree with that, well, then that's okay because we live in a country where that's possible, unlike China. But that wasn't really your question. Or maybe I did answer your question. You tell me. Let me. What's their grand ambition? Their grand ambition is to create a world where no one can stop them from doing all of the horrible stuff that they're doing, but also a world where in other words, instead of us shaping them, which was what we thought we were doing, where they shape us, you know, and where nobody in America can tweet about Hong Kong ever again. Okay, I don't, you know, I can't, you know, like where we can't have free discussion and free commerce because the party will tell us what's okay and what's not okay. That's not, that's a little different. And then, of course, their own economic expansion and, uh, you know, the expansion of the party's power and influence, which again, I guess you could say is like their right to, to to pursue but it doesn't mean i have to accede to it can you name a perhaps business or a country that has been most properly from china's perspective affected by this policy where they have succeeded in effectuating their policy you mean that's totally compromised by ccp influence if not totally compromised relatively yeah, compromised Cam- there's a ton of them cambodia uh pakistan uh you know um Chinese power and influence in Africa is real in Latin America increasing all the time uh, in ways that I think are, 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 yeah, are very problematic, not just for those, for not just for us, but for those countries as well. In other words, you know, for me as some, as a columnist, you know, I, it's not just about America. Hell yeah. You know, it's about the, the right of the individual, you know, in the, in the human sense, the, the path of the enlightenment, the idea that human beings have agency and that, we have rights and that those rights are ours. They're not given to us by a, by a, by a party or a King or even a president or a Congress that we were born with them. And that we, all people who believe in that should support each other in that goal, because that's the moral and ethical way to set up any, you know, set of communities. Now, if you believe that, then you, you, you have to look at all these countries where China is promoting illiberal uh, values and where their influence is causing more corruption and economic and ecological degradation and, you know, having a negative effect on those countries in that sense and where they're also exporting their model. In other words, the suite of technologies that allows them to control their own people, to keep them down, to make them nothing more than chattel of the party state. And for them to make that into a plug and play box of tools that they can give to any tin pot dictator in the world. Well, again, from a position as small l liberal not you know liberal in the american political sense but as someone who believes in individual liberty and freedom and human rights and democracy which are things that i'm happy to say that i am for you know then then china's expansion is very maligned for those countries as well and we shouldn't just care about that because that makes them worse markets for nike or for you know samsung but because there are millions of billions of human beings who lives who's who are suffering and whose lives hang in the balance. So that's what I think the stakes are, you know, and, you know, you, you know, when you hear somebody like Joe Biden talk about like autocracies versus democracies, well, it's kind of like, it sounds like a catchphrase, but, you know, take away the government system. And I, I'm just, let me just argue to the listeners who are on this podcast right now that like, it, forget about the political systems, even forget about, you know, America versus China, you know, uh, 
if you believe in you know the 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 idea that of human dignity, well, then you should look at the Chinese Communist Party and realize that they don't, and that uh, you know that's a problem that we can't afford afford to ignore, not as Americans but as human beings. And so, even before China manages to accomplish this objective of commandeering our decision-making ability, commandeering our free will in a way, they can bind us up in so many inconsistencies among ourselves that we really uh, lose sight of the threat, the competitive threat. And you write about this in your book. You talk how Trump, President Trump ran against what he called China's corrupt business practices, yet he had his ties and merchandise made in China. You talked about uh, Commerce Secretary, Secretary Wilbur Ross, who had a complicated and changing relationship with the this this issue, uh, but his apartment in New York City was filled with millions of dollars in Chinese artwork, even though he kind of came into the debate on the side of Wall Street. You even talk about Bill Gertz, a uh, very esteemed defense reporter who's written a number of books identifying the China threat, and yet he uh, came into some trouble for accepting $100,000 in loans uh, from someone affiliated uh, with a CCP faction rival to Xi. What do all of these inconsistencies tell us about our relationship with China? It's a great question, actually. I don't think anyone's ever quite put it to me that way. Uh, you know, it strikes me in two ways. One uh, is that, you know, uh, a lot of what's going on in the U.S.-China relationship is about we have competing interests. In our society, we have uh, complicated interests, and sometimes even inside of our institutions, our values and our interests are not as you know uh, cut and dry as we think we like to think they are. For example, in academia, we we want you know uh, open collaboration as it's one of our principles, but we also want academic freedom free from interference, and those two things can be opposed to each other. In the business community, it's the same thing. You know, we want to have ties with China. We want to have trade. We want to have connections in, to the Chinese people. We don't want to you know, them, our, our, our country to become the thing that we're fighting. We don't want to become a closed xenophobic society. We want to keep all business going. At the same time, it seems like we have a problem when they weaponize our economic engagement against us. So I, I think that's part of it. A big part of it, actually, is that, uh, you know, uh, these are very complicated issues and there are no easy solutions. And each institution has competing lobbies and competing financial incentives and uh, those are just beginning to play out, and they're very, very complicated. And you know, I don't, I don't say that everyone who disagrees with me has some sort of bad motive. I, quite the contrary, I just think that people have different incentives. And then, you know, the second part of your question is some people have bad motives or make terrible mistakes because human beings are flawed and they don't realize when they're getting caught up into something. And I don't know which which situation exactly is which. I just know that reporting on the China story, you find a lot of people. I'm sorry, you find a lot of money you know, flowing around and, uh, you know, um, it's really hard to trace, but in the end, uh, that it's, a, that's a part of the story is that they will try to corrupt us if they can, you know, they're, they're, they're throwing money at both sides. Neil Bush is in the book and, uh, Hunter Biden's in the book. They write about both of them. You know what I mean? And that's because that's how they think about it. They think about, they think, they think we're like us, like, uh, you know, 
a bunch of families, you know, that are, that are running the system. I mean, is you can kind of understand why they might get that impression, <laughs> frankly. Uh, so that's what they do. They try to they try to corrupt everyone who can be corrupted, and uh, some of us can, and some of us can't. I like to think I'm on the side of those who can't. Last question. I want to shift to uh, briefly talk about the uh, origins of the coronavirus, which your book catches up to toward the end. You had a lot of ground to cover to get there. In a, a recent Wall Street Journal article, Gerard Baker alleges that uh, the media essentially at least curtailed reporting on the lab leak theory because this story or where it was leading reporters uh, disagreed with some of their maybe internal beliefs or suspicions. And that friends of the media in Silicon Valley blocked access to articles that may have supported the lab leak theory. Uh, from your perspective and reporting, is this a fair or accurate restatement of events? Uh, it's an incomplete, it's a, it's a fair but incomplete restatement of events. And I, you know, I happen just to just know the story intimately well because I'm working in Washington Post and CNN in the middle of the pandemic and also writing a book about the unfolding pandemic. So I had a ton of reporting about this. So when I sort of talk about this, I'm just not giving you my my impressions out of thin air, okay? And, you know, what I say is that, yes, there was some uh, um, um, uh, uh, source bias. In other words, uh, you have reporters, national security reporters who are biased towards their intelligence sources who were uh, crapping on the lab leak theory because they were trying to rebut the Trump administration, people who they didn't like. And then they had science reporters who were uh, biased towards their scientist friends who were crapping on the lab leak theory because they were trying to protect any investigation because they didn't want to open up their own books and they had conflicts of interest. So for two different reasons, you had national security reporting teams in newsrooms all over Washington and New York and science reporting teams, uh, you know, science writers uh, in newsrooms all over Washington, New York and around the world just crapping on the lab leak theory internally and externally for months and months and months and months. Okay. And then some of it was, you know, they didn't want Trump to be right. And some of it was groupthink, and some of it was incompetence. And that's the other thing about our institutions that, you know, if you, I mean, I know, you know, John, you know, like people think all the, all these institutions are, everyone's doing everything intentionally, but a lot of it is just uh, people who are not very good at their jobs. I hate to break this to the people. It's usually not a conspiracy. It's usually just, Groupthink reporters, you know, Washington journalism is like a game of seven-year-olds playing soccer. You know, they kick the ball over here, everybody runs over there, then the ball gets kicked back and everybody runs back. And watching this, especially for the, something as important as the origins of the pandemic, which is a crucial national security and public health question, which holds the key to preventing us from having the next pandemic. In other words, if we, it's it's not a political issue, it's not a media issue, it's not a even it's a it's a forensic issue. It's a historical fact how we got into this mess that we need to figure out best we can. And so, as I'm writing my book in quarantine in my basement and watching the everyone just screw up the story over and over and over again, I did what I could, you know, which is to keep reporting it out right the way that I was taught. And if you look in the book, I filed that chapter in August. I think it holds up. That's not to pat myself on the back. That's just to say that you didn't have to be Kreskin to no, to figure out that this was a real possibility last year. You didn't have to be a, a rocket scientist. You didn't even have to be a virologist, although the biggest virologist in the the in the US government at the time, Robert Redfield, said it came from the lab, but that's not let's put that to the side for one second. My point is that the lab leak theory was always plausible. 
There were always a lot of people who thought it was plausible for a number of crazy reasons, including the things that uh, that that Baker mentioned in that piece, or the things that the hundred other you know hot takes on how the media screwed up the lead leak story speculate about. Because you could you could, you know you want an explanation, I'll find I'll send you ten hot takes that validate your explanation. But they're all incomplete because it was complicated because it was all of these things. And so I think the media has yet to come to a reckoning over how it screwed up this badly. Because then they got to the point where they're like, oh wait, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, says it's a possibility. And he can't be in a conspiracy with Donald Trump and going because that doesn't make any sense. So I guess it's not a conspiracy because then it, once Biden endorsed the possibility and sent his people to actually investigate it for once, uh, you know, everyone's like, oh, well, I guess it can't be a conspiracy because then you would have to believe that Joe Biden is in on the conspiracy. Right. And that's crazy. OK, so it can't be a conspiracy theory. Right. So then they're like, oh, shit, I bet we better report on this all of a sudden. And then you had a scramble. All right. And then all the media is like, oh, I found this thing about three sick researchers. I was like, oh, well, yeah, that's a good detail. I remember when I read that in Australian news in March. You know what I mean? But thanks, Wall Street Journal, for re-reporting it and pretending it's a scoop. And then the New York Times reports that the intelligence community didn't look at their own computers for the lab. They had a bunch of lab data. They never did the analysis in 18 months. They never did it. And I was like, what the hell were they doing for 18 months? And how dare they leak to all these newspapers that there's no evidence when they didn't even look at their own computers, which could hold a bunch of evidence, you know? And then the scientists who were the best friends of the lab and the people who had built up this whole industry of virus research, the industry of collecting dangerous viruses and playing around with them, whose entire industry would be destroyed or at least severely changed if the lab leak theory were to be true, found to be true. And I'm not saying we know it's true. F standard disclaimer. I'm just saying we need to check it out. Uh, and it's the same thing I say in the book. It's the same thing I'm saying to you right now. Same thing I'll say in a year until we check it out is that we don't, I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying we can't rule it out. So we have to check it out. And anyone who tells you we shouldn't check it out or has been telling you that for a year, you should take a look at why they're saying that because they probably have a reason. It might be because they're scientists who are connected to that research and they have a conflict of interest that they didn't disclose and then they used to trick a lot of gullible reporters into writing the wrong thing for a year. And, you know, that's all backwards looking. And, you know, if, if you want to talk about like whose hot take is closer than the other person's hot take on why the media and the intelligence community and the scientific community and the government all screwed up this investigation through negligence and naivete and not understanding the way the Chinese system works. I, we could do a whole podcast on that, but I'd rather look forward because that's actually the much more important picture because we still don't have an investigation. The 90 day Biden, re, like hopefully the intelligence guys will look at their own computers. That would be nice, but that can't be the end all and be all. And there's a very good reason for that is because there's an intelligence failure here that has to be investigated by someone who's not the intelligence community. And also the, this network of risky labs in China that won't let us into the lab even when there's a pandemic, well, we're going to have to rethink how we deal with those, whether we find the smoking gun or not. So we're, we're going to have to have, a, 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 at some point, I'm guessing, I'm hoping, I'm praying, I'm begging, an honest conversation about how we change policy and our systems to respond to the biggest tragedy in human history that we're still living through, by the way, that most in most countries is still getting worse, by the way. And we can't have it because we're caught up in our own. Well, did the media, did they have Trump derangement syndrome or were they just stupid? You know, the answer is some of both. 
Okay, if that's if that's your question, the answer is both. Okay, but my, my I'm more focused now on okay. Well, now can we start the investigation, and how do we do that, and what pressures do we need to bring to bear? And don't tell me that oh well, China won't allow the investigation, so we can't do the investigation because there's no situation in which a defendant would be allowed to say no, you can't investigate me, and the prosecutor would be like okay, you know that would be crazy. Okay, and don't tell me it's going to be. Difficult because you know what? If 590,000 dead Americans doesn't require something difficult, doesn't justify doing something difficult, what would? Okay. Can you imagine, John? I know we. I know this is going to be the end. So this is the thought I want to leave your readers on, your listeners with. Can you imagine after 9/11, you know, 5,000 dead Americans, worst terrorist attack on our soil in quite a long time? Can you imagine if they had said instead of having 9/11, they had said, "Hey, Al Qaeda, can we?" Please have all the information. I'll get us to know. And then we said, okay, forget about it. Let's go. Go on with our day. And we'll make no changes to our government to recognize the fact that we had this horrible, horrible tragedy because Al-Qaeda said they wouldn't let us in the caves. And, you know, it's really too difficult. And, you know, it's becoming political. No, that would have been crazy, right? You would never have said that to Americans, right? This is 598,000 dead Americans. So 100 times more the 9-11, and there's no investigation. There is none. And there's a COVID committee in Congress that's not covering the origin. It's not part of their mandate. How is that possible? You know, so I would say to all my friends in the media and the intelligence community and government and Congress is that like, yes, everyone failed. You know, no one bathed themselves in glory during the 2020 pandemic. All of our systems failed, except for the first responders who are the, really the only true heroes. Don't, Everyone, the scientific community, the intelligence community, the media, the government, Congress, we all failed, okay? But here's the good news. It's not too late. We still have to investigate. We still have to find out what happened. It's an urgent national security and public health issue. It's more important than politics. It's literally a matter of life and death. The book is Chaos Under Heaven by Josh Rogan. Josh, thanks for joining Real Clear Defense. Anytime.